Tonight I'd like to talk about metta, or loving-kindness, and mostly how metta and wisdom weave together. Because oftentimes um, we get the sense that metta is just a secondary or not as important as the wisdom practice of vipassana. And so I just wanted to show how in my own practice or share how in my own practice I've seen how both of these can come together and can weave a very strong tapestry of our spiritual life so that we can feel that we can be held in this strength of love and wisdom. They're so interconnected in, and we can see that in each moment's experience. I'd like to tell you a story about Manindra again and my first uh, experience of a retreat with Manindra. And then I'd like to tell you a story about Upandita and um, how those two teachers in my life have helped me to weave together love and wisdom. The first time I ever did a retreat that I can remember I stayed awake in, <laughs> because of the actual first retreat I did, I was asleep most of the time, I think. And that um, first retreat that I did that I was more awake in was with Manindra. And it was his first time that he came to America. And I was living in California at that time. And I had just arrived from the Philippines, where I had um, come with my three children. And I was a single parent. And when I wanted to attend the retreat, there wasn't any room to, to sleep or to, um, there was no bed space. But I said, I, I really just wanted to go. There was something in me that, that pushed me towards going. And so they, they made a space for me in the hallway um, between the, the bathroom and some of the bedrooms. It was a big old house that the retreat was given in. There were about 30 people in, the, in this big house. And I was really exhausted, you know, from trying to get there and from arranging things with my home, with the kids. And as all of you know, how exhausting it can be to just get to a retreat. And so I got there and they showed me my space and they had this kind of cot that I could unroll. It was like a, a sleeping mat for camping. And so I was very grateful to be there, even though I had such a space to sleep in. And so um, I, when the e evening came, we had our opening talk by Manindra, and the evening came, and I rolled it out. And then he, he was going to the bathroom, and he saw me there. And I was kind of like, my head was at the entranceway to the bathroom. And <laughs> And when he saw me there, uh, he, he kind of reached down and um, he said, uh, he was trying to get me up, you know, because I was kind of starting to lay down. And he said, is this where you're sleeping? 
and I said, yes, it, you know, there's no, there's no other room, but I'm fine here. And he says, oh no, you can't sleep here. You look so tired. And, and you know, Manindra is the kind of person that knows about everybody. He gets curious about everything. He, he asks questions about everybody, about how is your mother, your father, how many children do you have? Are your brothers and sisters living nearby? And if he can't ask you, he'll ask somebody else. So I suppose he knew a lot about me already. So he said, oh no, you can't sleep here. You, you must have good rest when you do retreat. You must have good rest. And so he said, you sleep where I sleep, and I'll sleep where you sleep, basically. So I said, oh, I can't do that because you, you're, you know, you're the teacher. And uh, that's what I was thinking. I'm not sure I actually said that. But he insisted in his way of insisting. And so he brought me to his room and he said, this, you'll have more comfortable sleep here. You sleep in this bed. So he, he gave me that bed to sleep in. And he ended up sleeping, I think, in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I was seeing where he was, you know, and he, he wasn't, uh, the bathroom was quite big, but <laughs> um, he wasn't in the hallway that evening. And, and so anyway, he slept in the big private bathroom that he and some of the other helpers used, I believe. And what touched me so much was his friendship and his gentleness. And it was like my first introduction to the practice, this kind of gentleness and this friendship that he had. And it wasn't as though he was a teacher. It was more like he, he was just a, a really caring friend. And, and, um, and I've seen that him be that way in life, you know, as I've gone through my spiritual life in the last 25 years with him. And those two qualities of gentleness and friendship are the root meanings of metta, gentleness and friendship. And it's what he seemed to embody in, in just his being, that kind of benevolence that friendship and gentleness has. And so it, it um, imprinted uh, very deeply in my heart that attitude. And metta is an attitude that we have towards our practice, towards ourselves, towards our practice, towards life. Unless we have that kind of an attitude, it's really hard to make it through the terrain of our minds and hearts. And so years went by, and um, I came across or was directed to practice with Sayadaw Upandita, who is sort of the, the opposite way of being as Manindra. He's a very fierce, very shrewd, very... Uh, his his uh, way of being reminds me of a focused laser beam, and Manindra's way of being is like an open, spacious sky. And so... A few years ago, I went to visit uh, Upandita as he was giving a, a retreat somewhere in Oregon. And he's getting on in age, so 
I don't see him often these days and I wanted to pay respects to him. So I went to the place where he was giving retreat and that day I offered uh, a meal, a Donna meal to him. And so it was the first time I had seen him maybe in about two years and so I was very, very happy to see him. He's been quite a fierce teacher to, to me and I'm very grateful for his clarity and um, the direction that he shows me on the path, this unequivocal direction of liberation. So he came down from the stairs of the hut that he was in, the cabin that he was in, and as he was coming down, I had my hands together and so happy to see him. So there were tears of happiness in my eyes. And I, as he was coming down, I said, I'm so happy to see you, venerable sir. I'm so happy to see you. And so it was translated by uh, Umya Tang, uh, his uh, translator. And then he responded to me something. And so I don't know what that was. And we, he came back down. He came down to where we were and we sat down together and we had um, a conversation, if you can think about having a conversation with Upandita. It's not much of a conversation, but just a little formality of how things are going in your practice. And so it was not too long and there was quiet, which is um, a big hint to do your bows and leave. And so then uh, his translator said, <laughs> would you like to know what he said to you in response when you were coming down the stairs? He was coming down the stairs and I said, yeah. I wasn't sure whether I really wanted to know, but anyway, <laughs> but I said yes. And so when I said to him, I'm so happy to see you, he responded, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. And so again, <laughs> it was this reminder, uh, you know, <laughs> of not putting, uh, not attaching any uh, happiness to getting any happiness directly from him, but to find <laughs> to finding that happiness directly within myself, experiencing that. And indeed, in practice with him, it's really, it's, you know, when you go to report to him, it's like, oh, you, you, so, you sort of like pray before you get there that he'll throw you a crumb of something, you know, of some kind of um, recognition or some kind of, uh, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't at all. He just stays really steady and firm with his clarity of, of the path that we're on is the path to liberation. And I've so appreciated that, even though it's been so hurtful to me at times, so difficult to, to face that and to face him. His, his, um, that kind of clarity comes from a very deep compassion. And it's hard sometimes, but I can connect to that. And sometimes it's like that too when you all come to us as spiritual guides and as friends to you. 
And sometimes we must say something that isn't very easy to hear, maybe point something out that might be easier for us to see because we're not in the forest. We're, you know, we're not lost in inside um, the mind. We can maybe see it from a little bit of a distance, what's going on. And so we may reflect and say things to you out of compassion and not out of any way of trying to put down or trying to uh, belittle, but just because we deeply care about your seeing things clearly, about your being able to accept things as they are and maybe begin to open a little bit to the terrain that seems to be um, difficult to see. As many of us can attest to, we come here and sit in this beautiful silence and this beauty around us, the autumn leaves that are turning, the magnificence of, of this place, really. And all sorts of detestable, unlikable qualities of the mind and heart come up within us. And it's very hard to see the beauty around us or appreciate or have gratitude for anything. To make things worse, we add yet another layer of resistance to these unlikable qualities of mind and heart that come up. It's hard enough to face those things that come up in our hearts and minds. And then yet another layer of resistance comes up, which makes it even more difficult to open to, to be with. We resist in many ways. We resist by feeling the resistance itself, by closing down to whatever we don't like within ourselves. We resist by going into fantasy, by thinking a lot. We resist by intellectualizing what's happening, by trying to figure it out. We resist by trying to fix it, by maybe cover it up, by eating or sleeping or taking um, long periods of unmindful being away from the practice. And all of this is really hard to face, that we do this. And to actually come to terms with, this is how it is, because it's so hard to do this practice. There was a, a fellow in a, in a retreat in Minneapolis was telling me that he's a librarian, and he ran across a book. It's a, actually a spy book, where one spy met another. And he just happened to open to a page where it said, he was just kind of thumbing through it, and he saw the word vipassana. So he, he just kind of looked more closely, and he said that one spy was telling another, um, oh, you're, you're such a good spy. Why are you such a good spy? And, and the other spy said, oh, it's because I really know how to investigate because I do this practice called vipassana. <laughs> And the other spy said that he did another kind of practice. It was another Buddhist practice. I can't remember what it was. And he said, oh, Vipassana, that's the hardest practice to do. It's sort of like, you know, 
the toughest martial arts of, of, of all the, the uh, meditative practices to do. It's really hard to face all of these difficult things that come up in our practice. And yet it is said many times in many different texts, in many different philosophies, things like um, this particular one, the mind by nature is pure. It is luminous. It is simply colored by impermanent visitors to the mind. The mind by nature is pure. It is luminous. But we lose sight of that purity. We lose sight of that luminosity. It's so easy to do that. We have this habitual tendency to give a major amount of our energy to the darkness and to the struggle because that's the way things are around us. That's the way our family life has been for 99% of us. We give an inordinate amount of energy to the struggle, to the darkness. And we really haven't learned to recognize the goodness, to recognize the purity, the luminosity. We forget about recognizing our goodness. It's so easy to forget that in our cultures, no matter what culture we've come from. It's good, it is good to open to the dark places of our hearts. It's what we need to do. But we really need to understand how to open to the beautiful places of our hearts too the purity of our hearts, to get close to that natural luminosity. Oftentimes, many uh, yogis report their practice, and within it, interwoven within it, is it's very easy to detect where there are many moments of metta there, many moments when there are feelings of gratitude, of generosity, of compassion, of patience. And yet, when we say, did you note compassion? Did you note the patience? Did you note metta? It's so like, what? It's really foreign. And I do that myself when I'm in practice. We lose sight of it. It's helpful to remember that that's uh, also a strong part of our practice. All those qualities of metta, which compassion, generosity, gratitude, acceptance, patience, spaciousness of mind, flexibility, those are all brothers and sisters and aspects of metta. Recognizing the goodness, recognizing the goodness, re-knowing it. That's what recognizing means, re-knowing it, because it's easy to overlook it, remembering it, making it part of ourselves so we make ourselves whole again. We bring all the members of this mind and heart together. It was really interesting for me to discover a few years ago 
um, when Steve was showing me the Abhidhamma charts that he uses, when I saw the, the different um, 52 mental factors and 103 or 102 consciousnesses, and when I looked at, at it and saw how many beautiful qualities of mind and heart there are compared to how many of the dark qualities of mind and heart there are. And it's like there are 26 or something beautiful qualities of mind and heart that are revolve around metta and mindfulness. And yet, a lot of our life and a lot of our practice revolves around the very few greed, hatred, and delusion. We struggle around those parts so much. And yet there's so much of our minds and hearts that we have yet to recognize and discover and um, sort of remake the circuitry so we can remember that path and go there over and over again. When Manindra stayed with us, he was a great teacher to me of how to be a mother. Um, all the four, all my four children were living at home at that time. And I have this one daughter who's now about 25. She just got married. And she was really trying to, at that time, she was trying to discover her spirituality and where, what path she wanted to go to. And so she was attending different churches in the area, different Christian churches. And it's funny, you know, Manindra was right there, but she would never ask Manindra too many questions about uh, the teachings of the Buddha. But he was just there embodying them, I guess. And so there was this group of um, people that came around the neighborhood. They were from the Church of Latter-day Saints. I think they were Mormons. I, I think that's what you call the Mormons. And they're really beautiful people, very dedicated and sincere. And they would knock on the doors and ask if they could share some of the Bible, uh, you know, during certain times. And, and then they'd want to make appointments of when they could come back. And so Tracy answered the door, and um, they talked her into it. And they said they, they made an appointment. She was going to come back. They were going to come back every week at a certain time, and it was summer. And she said yes. And so um, then she cleared it with me, and I said, that's fine. That, that This is good. I think this is good to do. So they came, and they, they would sit down with her, and... Um, then Manindra, being the curious person that he is, <laughs> he would come out of the room, you know, with his bald, shiny head and his white robes, and he would sort of hang around in the kitchen, which is around the corner from the living room where they were sitting, and he would, he would listen to, to them talk to Tracy. And then at dinner time that in the evening, he would say, what did you learn? What did you learn about... Christ and about the Bible and Tracy would say and he would say this is good this is good can you see this in your heart can you see this quality uh, and and he would reinforce reinforce that quality and and only pick out you know the good which which it all was actually 
and so and, and so I would listen and see the you know just the embodiment of spaciousness and uh, the pointing out the goodness all the time pointing out the goodness and so one time these uh, these people asked who is that man and uh, she answered oh that's my mother's teacher and uh, he's Buddhist and so they got they became very fearful and then they they started saying not nice things about Manindra about uh, you know about that particular path you can probably imagine and so uh, then she she was very confused and then she told Manindra that night at dinner so we heard the story and then Manindra was pointing out the goodness again and saying oh but they say all these good things and it just they just don't know about the teachings of the Buddha and let me talk to them let me talk and so and Tracy said no I don't think I don't think so you know? and so uh, but the next time they came and they you know they came in and they they were saying you know have you kind of renounced uh, the teachings of the Buddha and you know taken up uh, this path as your safe savior and, and Tracy said oh, no I don't think so because um, the Manindra, who's from, you know, who represents these teachings, he's so kind and so nice, and so I think I like, I like to see what that's all about more. And so she said it in a, in a, a, a different way, though. She kind of told them off and, so, <laughs> and gave them a piece of her mind. But <laughs> what I remember most about it is that he continually pointed to the goodness and he he just always did that even in when somebody was putting him down he continually pointed to the goodness and that's what metta does it just points to the goodness but we have to remember to do that we have to remember to have that intention to look towards the goodness of our hearts and the goodness of others also It's connecting to that place which we have long forgotten because of the struggles that we've had to go through in our own lives. It's a place that we need to bring our consciousness again so it can open up. It's so easy to get lost in the little globs of aversion and attachment here and there. It's really easy to do that. This afternoon, uh, the resident teacher here, Gloria, and I went for a walk around the loop. And um, one of the things that I've learned about being away from home is that I miss the sunlight a lot. And I can take the cold, but um, having the kind of shortened days that I really miss the sunlight. And I get sad with without a lot of light so every day if there's sunlight I sort of need to go out and get my share of it so it kind of lifts my spirits and so I went around the loop with her and it was it's one of those days as you've all seen where the sky's just so blue 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 and the leaves against the sky are shimmering and it really lifts your spirits when you do that 
So when I go out, I try to look up a lot, you know, and see the blueness of the sky and the shimmering leaves. And um, so we went around and we got to the pond and there was this dog that is in one of these, uh, is one of these dogs in this pack that comes around. Um, Kelsey, the, Kelsey's name's on the collar, so you'll probably notice Kelsey a lot. She's a golden dog. And so we came across her. She was sitting next to the pond with a yogi, and they were, you know, both kind of happy, the yogi and Kelsey. And it, it just made you happy, you know. And so there's this other beagle that lives across the street from, and so he comes out and he starts to greet Gloria and I. And then Kelsey starts coming near us, and the beagle starts getting really mad. And then Gloria tells me that this isn't Kelsey's territory. She reminds me, this is the beagle's territory. So the beagle starts snipping at Kelsey and growling. And, uh, and then I see, I'm watching Kelsey, and she's just kind of weaving her way around the beagle. And then I see the hair on the back of her neck go up around her collar. It just was really uh, curious how it did that. It just went up. But she just kept going. And then uh, uh, two other dogs came from the other side and started nipping at Kelsey. And the beagle was nipping at Kelsey's neck. And the beagle wasn't playful at all, very uh, on the border of being ferocious. And the other dogs were kind of playful, but also, you know, saying, get out of here with their, with their um, actions. But Kelsey just kept going through the through the, um, you know, all the growling and difficulty. And as she went along, I could see the rest of the hair on the ridge line go up. And there was no reaction from Kelsey. Now, I don't know, you know, you never know whether another being is having loving kindness or what. <laughs> but just that it was such a lesson to me. I don't know if she did it from loving kindness, but just to see her kind of weave in and out of all of that biting and nipping and a growling and aversion that came towards her, it was such a big lesson to, to see that. And that's what we do when we have a lot of metta. We don't need to growl back. We don't need to put another layer of aversion onto the aversion that's already there. We're able to weave our way through a difficult situation without getting lost. So as we continued around the loop, and there was this great sense of fresh air, the freshness of the air, the clarity of the air, the blueness of the sky, the different hues, and the kind of lightness of being. We got to the, the other end of the, the loop, and there was this um, truck coming towards us, and it, it started to turn into a field. And all of a sudden, this incredible stench of shit was <laughs> just overwhelming. It kind of hit you like, you know, a concrete wall. And it was so... It was so bad. It was like you could, I could just feel all my senses closing down. My head went down. 
my nose, it, you, you try to breathe, not breathe through your nose, but when you breathe through your mouth, you taste it, and it's awful. So everything really closes down. And so we started walking with our head down, and uh, then we started watching to not go on the clumps that were left by the truck, you know, that turned in. And so head down, walking along, watching all the piles of shit, over and over, you know, and then you, uh, and you, you walk and walk and walk, and pretty soon there's just little tiny bits of it here and there, but you're still looking at the shit, just, you know, with your head down one after another, and it just gets sort of mesmerizing and habitual, you know, and you forget, you forget that all you have to do is go like that, and it's gone. And we, that's what we do in the practice, you know. <laughs> you get this truckload that... <laughs> and it's not even there anymore. But you're still looking at it out of habit. You know, you just look at, even though the clumps are getting smaller and smaller, you still look at it. It's really incredible how you do that. And so it just, uh, and I looked up all of a sudden and there wasn't any more smell and the sky was blue and, and there's this great big space and this, you know, the leaves are shimmering and I turned to Gloria and I said, it's so amazing how we, how we do that, you know, and all we have to do is make the intention to turn the mind to another place. Now I know it isn't as easy as that in practice. It takes practice, actually, to do that. What takes practice is this moment of not looking at the clumps and doing that and looking at the metta, you know, looking at the beauty of the heart. It just takes a, a little movement, and that's the practice that we need, that little movement of turning the mind towards the goodness. It's said that the proximate cause for metta to arise is remembering the goodness. And it's just this little mind moment of doing that. And yet we think it's so hard. And it is hard. It is really hard. I have to say, it is really hard. Nyanaponikatera says uh, he was a great monk who died recently at the age of almost 90, I think. He was a German monk who lived much of his life in Sri Lanka and uh, wrote many, many wonderful books of translations of the original uh, writings of the teachings of the Buddha. And so I read this recently in a book that he uh, was written just about mindfulness. What a person reflects upon and considers for a long time to that his or her mind will incline. So if we think about what we think about and ponder on and reflect on for a long time, it's pretty scary. <laughs> what we're always looking at. So inclining the mind towards metta, Metta actually has qualities within it that incline the mind towards wisdom. 
that incline the mind towards nibbana. It does, metta does that by exposing and then purifying attachment and aversion in its different forms. And so many times when we're doing the metta practice, we feel like, I'm doing it all wrong because I just feel a lot of attachment coming up. Or I'm doing it all wrong because I feel a lot of aversion coming up. But that's what metta does. It exposes it exposes those qualities that need to be purified in our, in our minds, in our hearts. So attachment, one of the qualities it, it exposes is the near enemy to metta called attachment. And it's called the near enemy because it seems like metta, it can feel like metta. It can feel good for a time. It can feel very pleasant for a time. But it doesn't take very long before it starts feeling really heavy and we start feeling really trapped. This is what attachment feels like. It makes you feel trapped. Love in our culture has a connotation of maybe offering our love but then getting something in return. So it's where that attachment comes in, that attachment to receiving something in return or feeling something in return. But metta is this unconditional offering of love, this unconditional giving, this unconditional generosity of the heart that can say, I offer this to you, a wish for your well-being without an attachment to having it be that way, to having that wish come true, or without any attachment to receiving anything in return from you. I, off, I simply offer it to you. That's what metta is. And so when we say each phrase, it's with that kind of intention. We connect with that intention of not receiving anything in return from that person, not receiving, not, not even having to have that wish come true, or not even to needing to feel love ourselves from being, from giving it. It's just simply a generosity of heart. And so this is what metta is. It's this unconditional giving of the heart. And there are many times in our practice, it's a very subtle experience. And there are many times in being here on retreat that we can feel it, that we, it actually happens, but it's so subtle and we're, and we're so not trained to recognize it, to know it, that it passes us by without giving it attention. And so one of the ways that we can practice metta without doing it formally uh, on the sitting cushion, without repeating the phrases over and over again, is to recognize it when it's there. To really make that practice of recognizing when metta is actually present. It's different forms of metta. You know, the acceptance of heart, patience, generosity, gratitude and to name it, because naming it kind of um, 
it puts it deep in our psyche more, that kind of naming of metta. It has to do with giving love. Recently I came across this phrase by Krishnamurti that was so, uh, that's so poignant. He said, you want to be loved because you do not love. But the moment you love, it is finished. You are no longer requiring somebody to love you. And isn't this so? You know, moments, it's easy to see like if we've had uh, children around us, whether we're parents or not, and we've had children around us and we just feel this spontaneous um, sense of this generosity of heart, of just offering our love. It's not even that we consciously offer, it's just that this welling up and releasing of love that comes from ourselves to, to a small child, or maybe it's a small animal, a kitten or a puppy. And in that moment, we need nothing. It's so, there's such a sense of fulfillment, of contentedness, of not needing anything, not wanting anything. And this is what metta is like and what we can experience more and more if we remember to make that pathway there. Attachment or the near enemy of metta, we easily slip into when we're doing metta and we don't realize it. And we experience the the dukkha, the heaviness, the feeling trapped or imprisonment of attachment. And this is how metta can open us to wisdom. It opens us too when we, when we experience the imprisonment of attachment. We experience the heaviness of that attachment. This is dukkha. It opens us to this characteristic, this truth of life this first noble truth of life. So as we open to this first noble truth of life and we experience this depth of attachment and we find that we can make the intention to come back to a heart of metta to a practice of metta, and we're able to experience that place of dukkha with more softness, with more spaciousness. We begin to open to this first noble truth in a very loving way, in a way that doesn't push away dukkha, that allows us to open to it. We see also with the far enemy, with aversion, which is the far enemy of metta. And we say it's a far enemy because you can see it easily even when it's far away. Metta exposes aversion. 
Sometimes Manindra used to tell me that metta and mindfulness, too, the practice of vipassana, it's like a white cloth. And uh, when we do these practices, we can see the stains on the cloth more easily. So, for example, when we're doing metta practice, metta is so pure that we see aversion and we see attachment much more clearly, much more easily. And this is why it's called a purifying practice. It purifies attachment and aversion from our hearts. It exposes them first, and then it leads towards a purification of them. We experience aversion in many different ways. I think Steve spoke about it the other night. And again, when we can bring the spaciousness and softness of metta to them, they begin to dissolve. We begin to see how aversion is somehow disarmed in the face of metta. It doesn't have the same force aversion, any form of it, doesn't have the same force that it does when it's in within a field of metta or when metta is nearby. So metta has a quality of lessening the power, lessening the strength of aversion, which allows us to experience its, the quality of, um, of dukkha within it more clearly. There's um, one phrase that sometimes we use in metta. It's, uh, I accept myself just as I am. And one, there was one lady that had profound transformation in doing metta practice. And her phrase was over and over again, I, I love myself no matter what. And even when in the face of all this hatred and greed that comes up in practice, if we can let it come into a field of metta, a field of softness, a field of gentleness, a field of an attitude of being friendly with it, it's much easier. When we can be open to those deeply conditioned routines of the mind, those deeply patterned routines of the mind of greed and aversion, and we're able to let it be, and able in that letting be, we're able to let it go. Not in the sense of, you know, forcefully letting it go or pushing it away, but in a sense of that we see that we must let it go because it's going. Because it's coming and going. So in that big field of metta, in that gentle field of metta, we see that things are coming and going. We're able to see that because we're facing it. We're being with this first noble truth of suffering. And in being able to remain there, with the strength of metta, we're able to see that it comes and goes. We're able to see the impermanent quality. We're able to experience deeply anicca. 
And all, both of these, the, ex- the deep experience of dukkha, the deep experience of anicca, both lead us towards wisdom, those experiences, opening towards those, towards liberation. What happens is we begin to feel our strength in metta more, our confidence in all the qualities that come with metta, all the beautiful qualities of the heart. We begin to feel very safely protected by them. Emily Dickinson said, futile the winds to a heart in port. Futile the winds to a heart in port. So whatever winds that blow, the winds of aversion, the winds of attachment, if we feel safe, it's okay. They still may come and they will go, but it'll be more okay. And we'll be able to see more deeply the anicca, the dukkha will be able to open towards wisdom more deeply. So this practice of vipassana has to have metta in it. Vipassana deconditions the mind-body experience and metta reconditions it. We need that reconditioning or else we fall back into the same old patterns And so we must be able to do both. It is said that nothing in this world is left out or remains apart from the heart releasing loving kindness. Nothing in this world is left out or remains apart from the heart releasing loving kindness. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. Metta has this quality of immeasurable impartiality. It's a, a phrase that the Dalai Lama uses. It's a, it's a sense of having this boundless sense of connection with all of life, being impartial to all of life that one doesn't consider oneself more or less important than anyone else, or one doesn't consider anyone else more or less important than oneself. That it's this boundless, immeasurable impartiality. There's a strong sense of interconnectedness with all of life there. When we feel that, when we experience metta so deeply. Metta is one of those practices that connect us with all beings everywhere, starting one with oneself. And then if you follow the progression of metta, here we're doing, I think, the five individuals, and we may go on to groups later on. But when you do um, the whole practice as a whole, I think there's something like Uh, 486 or 426 categories or something like that. You go in different directions and um, but 
it's even more boundless than that. It's said that metta is one of the illimitables. We can't begin to experience the end of it because there are so many beings that we can practice metta with. It's illimitable. And so we have this sense of this deep interconnectedness with all beings, with all of life, when we do metta practice. And what that does when you, when you do it more and more and you feel the depth of it is that we begin to loosen a sense of this self-cherishing attitude, this where everything revolves around this small sense of self, a small sense of I. There's this um, kind of a joke that we have in the Buddhist circles, and I don't remember who said it, but there's a question, why are we so unhappy? And the answer is, because 99% of what we do is for ourselves, and there isn't one. (laughs) When we do metta, we begin to feel that there, there really is no separate self. And that's another way of experiencing no self. No separate self. We begin to feel this boundless connection with all of life, with all beings. I was reading in a, um, a book by Lama Yeshe recently, and the book, the whole book was about bodhicitta, the perfection of dharma. And it's beautiful how in the different traditions um, we, we kind of begin to meld together as we've come to America together. And this teaching of bodhicitta that comes from the Tibetans more than from any of the other teachings uh, really points out this sense of interconnectedness and that we're not doing our practice for ourselves alone but to remember that we're doing our practice for the benefit of all beings everywhere and it reminds bodhicitta reminds us of this over and over again that when we sit we do this practice for all beings everywhere and that that has very um, practical implications in terms of the practice, in terms of leading one towards an understanding of anatta or selflessness. Because when you're not doing the practice for yourself alone and you open to a connection with all beings everywhere, it lessens the sense of self. It lessens the grip on this self-cherishing attitude that we have. So these are some quotations that I've put together from that book. I think it is absolutely essential for us to have loving kindness towards others. There is no doubt about this. Loving kindness is the essence of bodhicitta, the attitude of a bodhisattva. Grasping is the greatest distraction to experiencing single-pointed intensive awareness in meditation. What we have to do is transform our grasping, our attachment, and self-cherishing. And if we haven't changed our minds in this way, none of the other practices will work. Doing them is just a joke. Unless you've changed within, you won't succeed. Dharma means a complete change of attitude. That's what really brings your inner happiness. That is the true dharma. 
and this change of attitude that he speaks about in the book and in his life that he spoke about is this attitude of loving-kindness, is this attitude of bodhicitta. And this is what loving-kindness points towards, this connection with all beings. We remind ourselves of that, of seeing the goodness in ourselves and all beings. It's a kind of freedom, a moment, of metta. When we're truly experiencing metta, it's freedom from greed, from grasping, it's freedom from hatred, from aversion, it's freedom from delusion, because that moment is really clear, and so the mind isn't confused. This moment is very close to a moment of liberation, when we have this moment of metta. And so this is why metta is really important. It brings us close to this kind of purity of mind where there is absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. It points us towards experiencing the depth of anicca, of impermanence, of dukkha, of suffering, and of anatta, or the no separate selfness or selflessness of life. Rumi said, the man to whom is unveiled the mystery of love exists no longer, but vanishes into love. And so it's this sort of dissolving that happens in selflessness. And it's also this dissolving that happens in love, in true love, in metta, in unconditional love. There are qualities of metta that are pointed to in the metta sutta. So I wanted to end with the Metta Sutta, and this is a particular translation that I found that I thought was very beautiful. But as I, I say the Metta Sutta, and this is not the chant that you chant every night, but it's um, these are the words of the Buddha that were spoken about Metta. Pay attention to the qualities that are pointed out here, the qualities that we can feel in our practice day to day and that we can turn the mind towards. Remember. This is the work of those who are skilled and peaceful, who seek the good. May they be able and upright, straightforward, of gentle speech and not proud. May they be content and easily supported, unburdened with their senses calmed. May they be wise 